Well, good morning, folks. Good to see you. You all made it into the building some way this morning, uh, down from beneath. Uh, thanks for your patience with that. The work will continue this week, Lord willing. Um, the front door may be available next Lord's Day. We'll keep you posted on that. Uh, there'll be no railings for a few weeks, probably, but uh, it can be used probably with care uh, next week, maybe. We'll see how things go with the pouring of concrete uh, through the week. But work started yesterday. Uh, again, I want to just thank Jack Armstrong for his work with us over the last number of weeks and months, trying to get a contractor to do it and then coordinate with him over the last number of days. And so I thank Jack again for his work in this regard. Uh, one other thing before we get to, to, to sing this morning, um, I'm going to hold off the open air today. Um, I've had a tickle in my throat the last couple of weeks. I'm not sick. You folks are okay. I'm, being, I'm feeling well. I know. Guard, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back further. Um, but I'm not going to stream my voice. Uh, I just don't want to risk stream my voice in the open air and the cool air um, that this morning. So uh, discretion, the better part of valor. But just I had announced that and I was planning to it until this morning. I thought, no, this is not wise. So we're going to hold fire on that today. But let's sing together the hymn number 28. Hymn number 28. How great thou art, O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands hath made. We'll stand together, please, and sing this unto the Lord.
Let's bow together in prayer. Let's seek the Lord's face as we come into his presence again around the word. Come before our great God, the Lord God of heaven and earth. That's all. Please bow together in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we come again in the name of our Savior. Thank you for Christ Jesus, the one whom you spared not. Indeed, the one upon whom you poured your wrath, and that we who deserve that condemnation would come to know the blessing of justification, and that we, having been granted Christ's righteousness, can indeed come this morning accepted in the Beloved. We thank you for the access that is given to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that new and living way opened before us into the very throne room of God. We bless thee, O Lord, for this Lord's Day, this Christian Sabbath, a day of rest and refreshment for our souls, whereby we can come together in this place, not in Samaria or in Jerusalem, but as the company of the redeemed in the church of Christ, we can worship in spirit and in truth. And so help us, O God, to uplift thee throughout today, not only when we sing, but in prayer and indeed in the word of God, that in all these things our hearts would lift up the glory of thee, our living God, that we'd exalt thee in our souls, that we mindful, O Lord, that thou art altogether wonderful, thou art the great and mighty God, worthy of all of our praise and adoration. Help us, O God, to have the highest thoughts of thee, that we would not seek to minimize your revelation to accommodate our understanding. For our understanding is finite, but you are the all-glorious, infinite, eternal God. Help us, therefore, to worship thee in a worthy manner. May we come in Christ's name, and again, may we acknowledge the Savior as that only mediator between God and man. And so encourage our souls, we pray for the young people downstairs and the children. Thank you again for those who uh, week by week engage in the Sabbath school instruction. May your presence be known in that place. And may the word of God be poured into their hearts. And that again, these children and young people will be raised in the things of God and come to live in the fear of the Lord. And so help us today. We need thy grace and help. Bless us now as you come to study your word. Help us again to uh, hedge ourselves in with the revelation of your word, uh, not to engage in vain speculation. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's turn again to John chapter 4 for the reading of God's word. Uh, this morning, John chapter 4. Just going to read that 20, uh, 24th verse. We read the longer section uh, last Lord's Day. Uh, and really our attention, of course, is falling in those opening four words of verse number 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And really using the, the, the concept of God as a spiritual being, uh, as a springboard into a further development of God's attributes. And we'll see that going forward. The spirituality of God is, of course, fundamental. He is a spirit or is spirit. And again, there are various thoughts. And I think when the authorized version translators translate verse number 24, they put the capital S in spirit, and not to indicate the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, but to indicate that God is the supreme spirit. There are other spirits. So God is not just one of all the spirits. He is the great supreme spirit. And so uh, we're going to keep that in mind today. Just keep that word at the top of your, your minds, the supremacy of God as a spiritual being. And last time we thought of the most 
common way this is understood, and that is the fact that God is a spirit in a negative sense. It means that he has no body or parts. It's the immaterial essence of God. And we went through all that. I'm not going back over that ground uh, today. I want to go further in terms of considering the positive properties of the Spirit. And these are less commonly thought of. And again, we saw that even in our own uh, discussion uh, last time. You begin to define uh, what is a Spirit. Uh, We kept going back to the same answer. Uh, without physical properties or without uh, matter, and we kept going back to that, uh, that particular answer. But there are significant properties of all spirits. Okay, we're going to look at these in terms of the positives, and there are four of them. I mentioned them uh, very quickly last time, uh, but let's look at them in some more detail uh, today. So the first one is all spirits possess what we may know as animacy. Now, I have Y endings, okay? So this, this is the worst of the words. Uh, the rest of the words are easier than this one. But animacy, we think of an animate being. Okay, the same terminology there. It is a living being. And spirits are living. They possess the ability to perform functions. Animacy. So turn to John chapter 5. I thought we'd just uh, look at John 5. It's very close to us here in the portion we've turned to already. John chapter 5 and the verse number 26. Again, note the language here. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now, we understand, of course, the Father to possess life. The Father is, of course, the first person of the Godhead, the eternal God that dwells in light unapproachable immortal, invisible, God only wise. Here the Father is said to have life, and note the language, in himself. It's a a reference again to God's animacy, God's vivacity. There's life in God. Now, the second part of the reference is is challenging. Again, it's being used by some to, to teach falsehood. He says, as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And that's confused people. Some take this idea, therefore there is a, an inequality in the Trinity. Uh, the Father is the author of these things and has, again, therefore the, the, the bequest to give life to the Son. But again, that's not what the passage means. I understand why people take it that way, but that's not what it means. You see, even note the language. Verse 26 ends with the two words, in himself. So the Son has life in himself in the same way that the Father has life in himself. This is a relationship of co-equality. But what we see in the Bible is what we term the Trinitarian relationship. The three persons are co-eternal, co-equal. They are all gods. There's not three parts God, but all three persons are in themselves, and they possess all the essence of God's. But what you see in the Bible is what we term intertrinitarian relationships. And the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. That's not a hierarchical structure. It is simply the Bible describes how the three persons interrelate the one to the other. And so in this sense, the Father, therefore, is given life to the Son. It's indicating that particular thought. But also beyond that, I believe the thought here beyond that equality in the Trinity is also the thought 
that the Father has given the Son as the incarnate Son, this life to then dispense upon others. And so you see that on the way down through, or in the previous verse, by the way, in verse number uh, 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And so it's indicating again that the Father, as the Son comes into the world, the Son in the world possesses all the properties of life-giving power. Okay, so I think my point is not to deal with this text, but I understand when I read the text, there are questions that will come to your mind. But my point to the text today is very simply to point out that as a spiritual being, the Father possesses life. But life that is supreme, life that is self-sufficient, eternal, immortal life, therefore life that is not like other spirits, God as the supreme spirit possesses this life life in himself. Again, one other sort of cross-reference this, and again, what's the application of the Father's life here is that he can give life, spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead, that's verse 25, and then indeed physical life to those who are in the grave, verse number 29. Okay, so what do you see from this? Where do we get our spiritual life from? Not from the church, not from our works because we're dead, but our spiritual life only comes from the one who possesses life in himself, the Father, the source of all spiritual life, and then in the resurrection, indeed the source of physical life in the resurrection of the dead. But then turn across to 1 John chapter 1. You'll see another reference. And by the way, we have, we have a lot of verses today. Have your Bible out and ready. I'm not sure how far we'll get, but we'll see how, how we go as time goes on. But 1 John chapter 1 and the verse number 2 Again, I should go back to verse 1, of course, in 1 John, these words that so reflect John's gospel, chapter 1, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which have seen with our eyes, which have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. It's just that terminology, the word of life. Life, defining word, word, John 1, of course, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ coming as the Son of God. But verse 2, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which is with the Father and was manifested unto us. So the Father is life, and here the eternal Son has eternal life. That's why John 5 is not teaching that the Father possesses life, and then at some point in eternity, gives that life to the Son. If that's the case, the Son's life is not properly eternal because there was a time when he did not have life and then he's given life. Okay, please, I know, mind's blown, I get it. But let's stick with the language of the Bible. The Father has eternal life and the Son has life eternal, possessing this eternal life. Now, as a living, animate being, a spiritual being with life, we then see that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they are as three persons able to perform things, do things. They are a doing being. So, Romans chapter 1. Again, I just want to note these. We're just going to read these verses and then move on quickly. Romans chapter 1, 
There's just two words I want to draw your attention to, Romans 1 and the verse number 20. We've seen this in terms of God revealing himself in creation, but what does he reveal? Well, verse 20, for the invisible things of his uh, sorry, the visible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power. Okay, it's just those two words. His action in creation is a revelation of something that was already his possession before creation itself. He possessed power that is eternal, the ability to do things before he does things. Of course, we understand creation is out of nothing. But the reason creation can be out of nothing is that it is not from nothing. It is from the power of God, that pre-creative power of God, that eternal power of God, His ability to do things. So it's eternal. Okay, you go back then to Isaiah 40. Go back to Isaiah chapter 40. You can see another reference here. I'm just going to show you certain things. Attributes really are descriptors of God's power. Isaiah chapter 40 and the verse number 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. So what, uh, again, if you were going to give a, 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 an adjective to describe God's power in this sense, well, Romans 1, it's eternal. What would you use? What word could you use from, from this one? Again, just pick a word. Regarding God's power, what adjective might you want to use? The descriptive word. What? Infinite, yep. Anybody else? Uh, Christine? Sorry. Yeah, was inexhaustible? George? Yeah, inexhaustible. Sorry. I heard it in stereo. I've an inexhaustible down here as well. Uh, Sean? Um, okay, that's the whole thing. I'll come back to that in a minute or two. Yeah. It's everlasting, yeah. So it's, it's, but something, in a sense, could be everlasting and yet diminishing. Okay, just because the initial resource is so great that you could see potentially an infinite resource that continues to diminish. That's not God, though. But this, the point in this is he never, ever exhausts his power. There's never any less power by function. One act does not diminish God's power by one little piece. His power is inexhaustible, and that's the, the term I use. So, amen. And it, but it is, I'm not, it, because it's inexhaustible, it's everlasting. I'm not arguing with that at all. These things come together, of course, in the Scriptures. But the, the real thought is that God's power does not diminish at all, not one little bit in all of his performing of all of his acts. Okay, so it's eternal and exhaustible. What about Hebrews chapter 1? Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 then. Hebrews chapter 1, and verses 10 through 12. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they are changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Okay, again, it's picture, poetic language to describe again how God is distinct from creation in the sense that he is immutable in his power. That's, again, what we're saying. So 
the inexhaustible power of God. It's connected to the immutability of his power. It doesn't change. Again, no less powerful today than he was when Christ rose from the grave. And so as Sean has rightly said, when you think of God's animacy, we are thinking here of God as omnipotent. And thus, again, I come back to the same word. He is supreme spirit. Other spiritual beings can perform functions. Again, you think of the spirit, you know, the man who's concerned with his son because the spirit throws him into the fire. The ability of a spiritual being to perform functions, but only God is omnipotent with a power that is inexhaustible, eternal, and unchangeable. Okay, that's the first thing regarding God's animacy. And of course, when you think of uh, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the encouragement therefore is he gives power to the faint. And so, where do we get our sort of power from? We get it from the Lord. Yep. Yeah, no, amen. This is, this is a Trinitarian power. And one of the things that's often pointed out by, by theologians is that the three persons of the Trinity are all involved in all the acts of God. And you see that in, in all the acts of creation and redemption, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in those, in those works. So, amen. It's, an, it's a Trinitarian power. Well, maybe time allows, might get back to that before the end of today. We'll see. The second thing that the Spirit, as a spiritual being, possesses is what we term... I'm going to use the term faculty, um, but it's metaphysical faculty. And that's got three forms, again, classically understood. There is the mind or the understanding. Mind's easier to spell. You have the will. And then you have, in the third place, the affections. Those are often known as the three faculties of a metaphysical being. They are metaphysical faculties. What does a soul, spirit, being do, they think, they will, they make choices, and they have affections properly defined and understood. So let's look at those three things in turn very quickly. You have Psalm 147. Again, there's so much in this we could, we could have turned to. Psalm 147. Again, I just happened to turn back to Isaiah 40. This was going back to the psalm there. You'll note the psalm, Isaiah 40, verse 28. There is no searching of his understanding. Okay, the description of the Lord's understanding is being infinite. And then Psalm 147, and the verse number 5. You got it there. Great is our Lord, and of great power, and his understanding is infinite. Okay, so the Lord God, as a spiritual being, has the, cap the capacity to think and to understand, to process, to assimilate factual information, and to understand that information. But of course, the Lord's understanding is not like ours. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things without any possible gap in his knowledge. He knows all things, again, without deduction. So you, you know, you look outside right now and you know, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a fall day because you, you make deductions. You look at the color of the leaves, you see the, the, you see the level of the sun, and you think, well, it's, it's, a, it's a fall day. 
we, we make deductions to then bring about our thinking and understanding. God just knows. No need to deduct or to think. In the sense of we processing thoughts, God knows all things. And so we think of God's knowledge. And again, as we think of God's omnipotence, here we think of God's omniscience. God's omniscience. Okay, so we think of God's faculty of mind. What about his will then? Well, you've got Ephesians chapter 1 and the verse 5, God's will. Again, by the way, we're going to go back to these things, but I'm just building a foundation now to come back to these things in more detail. So we're not going to do, that's not omnipotence finished with. Okay, we'll come back to that, look at it in more, a lot more detail uh, going forward. Uh, but Ephesians 1 verse 5, and it says the same for these things. Uh, I just want you to see these are, fact, these are capacities and faculties of a spiritual uh, being. And as such, they are true of the supreme spirit. Ephesians 1, of course, describing the plan of God and redemption, verse 5 says, having predestinated us on the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Okay, just the two terms, his will. God eternally possesses will. It's a spiritual property, a metaphysical faculty of choice and will. And again, just to tie in with tonight, turn across to Romans chapter 9 and we'll see this tonight. In the message of Romans 9 tonight, we'll see it in more detail, but Romans 9, verse 18. Again, language describing the will of God. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Verse, 20, uh, verse 19 then, sorry. For who hath resisted his will? His purpose, his choices. All those things that we can think about in terms of the, uh, the will of God. What term might we use to describe God's supreme will? Any ideas? What, what there's a theological term we use for this? Yeah. Okay, it's unlimited. Yep, yeah, it's true in terms of will. Sovereignty. Yeah, sovereignty. If you want a Latin term for it, omnivolence, omnivolence. You can use the Latin term for that, all willing, in terms of the, the supremacy of His will, because a spiritual being's will is not free. Only eternal God's will is truly free. And so we talk about his sovereignty, or we talk about God being, uh, having the capacity of omnivalence. He's an all-willing God. Okay, then affections. Now turn to John chapter 17. Now this is the one that has to be taken with great care. The supremacy of God in terms of his affections indicate that his affections are not like human emotions. And so, again, classically over the years, uh, again, going back to the church fathers and then through pre-Reformation times, there's been a distinction made between human emotions, passions, and God's affections, which are not like human emotions that are passionate expressions, but rather they are settled affections coming from a proper understanding and a proper will. But they are still properly called affections. And so you've got John, 4, sorry, John 17 and the verse 20, the verse 24. Father, I will, not they also whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. There's the affection of love, a possession of the Trinitarian 
God prior to the world's foundation. God has the affection of love within the three persons of the Godhead. It's divine, it's unchanging. And so you see elsewhere in the Bible, God has given the attributes of grief and anger and joy. Again, anthropomorphic language, you understand, but still language that means something. But let me turn you back to Isaiah 53. I want to show you this. Isaiah 53. Again, I imagine we'll come back to this in more detail as well going forward. Isaiah 53 in the verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here, of course, we have two references to the Lord's pleasure. The first part, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And then the last part, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, I think it's clear that in verse number 10, at the end of that verse, the pleasure of the Lord refers to the good pleasure of God's will. But that will is not without affection. It is not a cold, calculated will. It is called the pleasure of his will. And here the term is, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, God's eternal plan of redemption to redeem the elect is something that delights God. He has the affection of delight and joy in his eternal purpose. And that is before the creation of the world. The affection of God. So there is these two things so far. Animacy and this metaphysical faculty of the mind, the will, and the affection. Any questions on that? Again, we'll come back to it. But Georgia. Nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, there's no such there's no such being who can make a decision without any affection. People talk about oh, a psychopath. Well, a psychopath has great deficiency in the connection between their will and their affections, but it's not completely gone. It's just very very badly broken. Uh, the fall has so uh, damaged someone's ability to, 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 to emote when it comes to their choices. But again, these things, they, they come together. And so, when, well, how do, how do we make a choice? Well, our mind, again, these faculties, are, our mind thinks through the processes of, well, if I do this, this will happen. If I do that, that will happen. We begin to process. But ultimately, we decide to do those things that we want to do. So this, these, these three things always come together in, in actual practicalities and, uh, and situational living. Yeah, Dan? Hmm. It's just like, that's 
Yeah, no. When I was getting, I was really working through these things this morning in preparation for today's class, and you're just sitting there going, "Wow, this is just because these things add up layer upon layer, and the glory of our God, and we, we don't take enough time to think about it." Now, we're, we say we're going to go back through all that. I'm deliberately going quickly today because I want you to get a sense of all of this in one shot, and then we'll come back and build these things uh, little by little going forward. And so let, let's move on. We've got this of affections. There's two more that I want to think about today, and what we can do is very, very quickly. And the third one is, again, all spiritual beings possess morality. I can prove this in several ways. One of the easiest ways is to think of the reference in 2 Peter 2, the angels who sinned. So spiritual beings like angels, they have moral capacity. They are moral agents, capable, again, of doing things that are immoral. But God, of course, as the supreme spirit, again, come back to the supremacy of God's spirit, God's moral agency is pure. We refer to God's impeccability. The God who cannot lie, God who cannot sin, God who cannot deny himself. You think of Habakkuk 1, his eyes are too pure to behold iniquity, the the purity of his morality. Matthew 5, we're to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, the perfection of our Father. Or you've got Mark, Mark chapter 10, God alone is good. And the goodness of God that God alone possesses. Or, or James chapter 1, again, God cannot be tempted with evil. His impeccability, he's, he's immune to temptation from evil, such as the purity. There's nothing, there's nothing in God that can be provoked to, to think or do evil. It's the supreme perfection and morality of our God. Possesses this morality. Okay, and then fourthly, and again, we'll, we'll come back to these things, but fourthly, there is the issue as a spiritual being possesses personality. I think it's a lovely way to finish. Personality refers again to having a self-awareness. God is not it, but I am. He, the eternal God. You think of spiritual beings having the possession of personality. You think of my name is Legion, we are many. The spiritual beings, even the evil spirits, having self-awareness and personality. The ability to communicate, to speak, to express themselves. These things that are true of spiritual beings, personality. And of course, God is the supreme spiritual being. Turn to, to Psalm 90. Because God's personality is eternal Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. The, the sense of the eternality of our God. But what does that mean in terms of personality? Well, it implies relationship eternally. You turn across to John chapter 1. So the eternal God exists in three persons. John chapter 1, and the verse number 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now here, of course, only two persons, 
of the Godhead are in consideration here. Although you could argue when it says the Word is with God, He was, of course, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian relationship. And yet, within the three persons, whilst there is equality, the Word was God, there is a sanction, the Word was with God. Do you know one of the strongest proofs for the Trinity are the three simple words, God is love. That can only be true eternally in a Trinitarian understanding of God. The Islamic God cannot be eternally a God of love. Of course, it's a false God. The God of the Bible alone can be truly said to be love. God is love because that love, as we saw, existed between the three persons of the Trinity from all eternity. He has always been a God of love, expressing that love, the one person to the other, the perfect delight within the three persons of the Godhead, perfect inter-Trinitarian communion and fellowship, the eternal love of God, eternal personality. Dear folks, this is your God. This is the God of the Bible. We have done this in 30 minutes. Again, covered a huge section of Bible theology regarding the person and the attributes of God. But I want to do it deliberately. You see, these are the possessions of a spirit, but God is spirit with a capital S, the supreme eternal spirit, worthy of your praise and your worship, worthy of your trust, worthy of your devotion, your faith, And may God indeed help us to worship in a proper manner today through the person of Jesus Christ. Any final comments? We're really finished for now, but yeah, done. Yeah, I think when you, when, you, when you consider these things, you, you, you consider the glory of God and, 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 and the revelation of the Word, and you realize this, we are creatures. God alone is God, and we are so unlike God. And it should drive us to the point, we need, we need a rescuer, we need a redeemer, a savior. And those are the things that are, that are true. God's you know, supreme, perfect morality is so distinct from our, you know, our fallen state. You know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And even man, of course, Adam was created with morality, but mutable morality. Angels, mutable morality. God alone, immutable morality. Truly, only impeccable. And so the impeccability of Christ comes from that as well. Yes, Dizzy. Yeah, yeah, it could be, but it's not. So what you're, what you're demonstrating is the fact that if there are two, it's not Allah. So you've, already, you've deconstructed their view of Allah as a singular person. Okay, so I've deconstructed that. If it's two, why not three? And it's three because the Bible shows us three. And so you then you build your argument from Trinitarian uh, God from the... I, I wouldn't... 
I'm not saying I would start here, but I think it's a very important place to start when it comes to dealing with, with monotheists like, or monotheists, sorry, with those who, like uh, Islam, believe in a, in a single person. We believe three persons in the Godhead. Yeah, George? Yeah, amen. He's life in himself. You know, the, one of the interesting things in that, in the Acts 17 passage, God hath need of nothing. He doesn't need anything. And so the perfection of God pre-existing creation is proven there. And even that, only, only a unipersonal spirit can be lonely. And so when it comes to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not possible. God is not lonely ever. There's the, the perfection. He doesn't need other beings to, to, to finish up his, his being. He is perfectly uh, sufficient in himself, even in those relationships. Yeah, yeah Dan Lasso. No, absolutely. No, amen. And of course, the resurrection of Christ is always the, the linchpin of all the biblical revelation of God. So, okay. All right, let's pray, folks. Thanks for your time again and your attention uh, this morning. May God encourage your hearts. We'll be back in a few weeks' time to get back to this stuff. Well, let's seek God's face. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time to consider your word. Uh, although, oh Lord, we've, we've covered a vast scope of your revelation of yourself. Help us to understand it, uh, to take it into our hearts and that again, by your mercy, we'll worship thee in a worthy manner today. Oh, exalt the Son of God amongst us. We thank you again for that intertrinitarian, eternal love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship thee, the triune God. Bless our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.